Hi, how are you? Are you awake? You here? Yeah, I say welcome to those of you joining us over at Mission. Uh, I know that uh, you guys have watched a video there in Mission about our prayer week, and we just watched it here as well. I uh, just really want to encourage you, uh, as we go into 2024, you're going to hear us talking a lot in this coming year, uh, trying to up our game in the whole area of prayer. Uh, we're going to do uh, the Bible reading again this next year. We're using a little bit different plan. We invited you last year uh, for many people who have never read through the Bible in the whole setting through a year uh, to join us, and so we finished that 2023. We're going to do that again in 2024 with a, a different reading plan. We're going to encourage you in your five by five prayers and what a great way to start the year uh, with a prayer focus. So anyway, we are in John 16. You're going to want your Bibles open. Uh, we're going to wrap this uh, final conversation that Jesus is having. Uh, the timing is interesting. We're uh, dealing with uh, the night before his crucifixion and we're doing that in the Christmas season. Uh, interesting tie. Uh, by the time we get to the end of the message, we'll tie it back around to the story of Jesus' life. Uh, but Really, where Jesus ends this conversation on this night before he gets to the high priestly prayer of John 17 is with this idea of the friendship that there is between trials and blessings. The friendships between trials and blessings, sorrow and joy, suffering and glory, or, or if you wanted to put it into one sentence where we're going to head with this text tonight, it would be this sentence, the path of joy is also the path of suffering. Now, I don't know how you feel about that sentence. Uh, probably uh, it's a little bit uncomfortable because we look at that and we're like, I like the first half, the path of joy. But is also the path of suffering is a challenge, and yet we have all found that to be true. It is one of the paradoxes in our lives, in our spiritual lives, that the greatest times of growth and joy and strength, spiritually speaking, often happen simultaneously with hardship and sorrow and weakness. We grow in the valleys of our life, if you will. And so Jesus is going to finish off this conversation. And by the time we get to the end of the text, it will finish off this way. And I have said these things to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So calling it when sorrow and trials, when trials and joy hold hands. And that's really how it fits together. So let me illustrate it this way. Uh, if you took, uh, and I'm, you know, I know that everybody loves it when I'm drawing because I'm such an artist. If this is your life, this is your timeline. So it began back whenever it began. Uh, your earthly, your physical life is going to end somewhere, uh, but I put the arrow out there intentionally because we believe that we are eternal. We have souls that carry on even after our physical death. And so over the course of your life, everybody in this room has joys and sorrows. Uh, you've got all your high points and triumphs and all the lo lovely things that you love to talk about, and then you've got the hard times in your life. And if you would just take your lifetime and just, you know, dot the various things, and you've got both joy, sorrows, ups and downs, and then put a timeline along this and go, okay, so my life looks a little bit like this. Yeah, that's not great, but anyway, you get the idea, okay? And then you say, okay, I can chart the path of my life up here, and then these sorrows that I have down here. Now, help me with this. What do we typically call the things on the upside? Give me a word. Somebody over in mission, yell a word out to me. What do you call them? Ah, oh, blessings. That's a great word. That was the word I was looking for. Uh, you get an extra cookie after the service. There we go. Blessings. What do we call this stuff down here? 
Trials, there you go. We'll come back to this picture a little bit later. But you can see by the drawing the implication already, they're holding hands, and we're gonna get to that. So we're having dinner a couple weeks ago with some friends, and in, in the course of that evening, the conversation somehow turned to this particular conversation of how in our spiritual life we often grow the most in our times of challenge and struggle and whether it's sickness or finances or relationships or whatever it is that in those times of trials and, and one lady at the table said, you know what, it's sort of like that song that is playing right now on the Christian radio, the song Blessings, which I think you've probably all heard it and pulled up the phone and pulled up the lyrics. And, and here's how some of the lyrics go. We pray for blessings. We pray for peace, comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray your mighty hand to ease our suffering and all the while you hear each spoken need, yet love us way too much to give us lesser things. And then the chorus goes like this, because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? And what if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if the trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? So Jesus is coming to the end of this discussion. His instructions with the 11 that are left. Judas is already out gathering the soldiers who will betray him and arrest him in the garden. And he's pouring out his heart to the 11. They're overwhelmed. He says, I can see that you've got grief. In fact, I've got so much more to share with you. We looked at this last weekend, but you can't bear it right now. It's beyond what you can handle. But but take heart, because when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach you, he will instruct you. It'll all make sense. That was last week's message. That the Spirit will come and he'll reveal it to you. He'll guide you into all truth. So you can't handle it now, but you will. And as with every talk in this study, uh, this last half of John 16, there is so much here. So many directions we could take. Uh, it, it's quite repetitious, in fact. It goes back to John 14. So if you remember a message from a few weeks ago on the praying and the asking and the Spirit that we had in John 14, he repeats that theme here. But we've got to wrap it up somehow. So I, I'm going to wrap it around these three themes. We're going to talk about riddles. We're going to talk about babies. And then we're going to talk about the end times. I think it's all here in the text, so lots of fun that we're going to have tonight. So it opens with Jesus dropping a pithy little sentence that kind of confuses the disciples when he says to them, you know what, in a little while you're going to see me no longer, and then in a little while you'll see me again. Uh, so we'll start reading at verse 16, chapter 16, verse 16, a little while and you'll see me no longer, and again a little while and you'll see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this thing he says to us? A little while you see me, a little while you'll not see me, and a little while again and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. And so they were saying, what does he mean by, quote unquote, a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you'll not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Okay, interesting little statement. Uh, they're confused by this, uh, this idiom, this metaphor, this turn of speech, a figure of speech, if you will. They start 
talking among themselves, whispering. Nobody directly asks Jesus, which I, I think is telling because earlier in the evening, you know, they kept punctuating Jesus' conversation with questions and they got a little bit of, you know, sort of backhanded response. And I think they don't want to get the question wrong. So they're just muttering among themselves. And Jesus is like, you know what? I know what you're talking about. Are you wondering about what I meant with that little phrase, a little while, you're not going to see me. And a little, little while again, you are going to see me. And specifically, what did I mean with little while? I'm trying to tell you that you're going to weep, but you're also going to have joy. Do you want to know what I meant? Well, I'm using a figure of speech. Now, in the English language, you're all very familiar with this. Uh, the English language is filled with word pictures, with metaphors, with idioms, with aphorisms. Uh, those of you who are uh, English scholars or English majors who, who know the English language will know that there's all these various phrases that we use around uh, metaphors, idioms, etc. And we don't know what they all are, but we use them all the time. And so if you think about the, the phrases that just pop into your mind over the course of the day, these short, pithy little sayings that stick in your mind, they have a seed of truth, a kernel of truth that helps you remember some sort of wisdom. And Jesus uses one of those pithy little statements here, a metaphor, an idiom. Uh, in the Bible, the Hebrew language called them mashals, not mishal, but mashal, M-A-S-H-A-L, a, a proverb. It was a rule or a principle. Now, not a law, not a guarantee, an absolute certain thing, but all things being equal, uh, when life is sort of going along generically, these principles are generally going to be true. Now, any of you who have friends who speak a foreign language will know you've heard this statement. It's like, well, in my language, so in German or in Spanish or in Punjabi or whatever their mother tongue is, they'll, they'll be like, we have a saying, and then they'll rattle it off to you in their language, which is meaningless, right? But it doesn't translate well. Anybody ever said that to you? It doesn't translate into English. And in fact, English translators will tell you that translating English into other languages, it's the idioms, it's the metaphors that give us such a hard time because they just don't make sense, these word pictures. Our language is full of them, hundreds of them, maybe thousands of them, if you would start writing down all the times you use these little idioms. In fact, let me throw some out, and I'm sure that you can finish them in the end. If it ain't broke, don't. Ah, oh, you're right with me. A penny saved is a penny earned. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of, don't judge a book by its, yeah, see, now you know all those things. You have not a clue what they mean, but you know them, you remember them, and there's a kernel of truth in there, so you think through the words, and you're like, okay, this is what that idiom means to us. We have an entire Old Testament book called Proverbs, 31 chapters that are basically one-liners, one chapter per day of the month is a good way to read Proverbs. All these one-liners giving us seeds of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Go to the ant, you sluggard, and observe its ways and become wise. A wise son listens to his father's discipline, but a mocker doesn't listen to rebuke. A gentle answer turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And on and on and on the list goes. 
So John has used some idioms, some metaphors in his gospel already. Uh, There's a funny little statement back in chapter one that you might remember. Jesus is coming, John's baptizing, he sees him coming over the hill, behold the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world, and then he turns to the crowd and he goes, this is the guy I've talked about to you, I've told you about him. This is the one who will come after me, but he was before me because he outranks me and I must become less so he can become more. You're like, what? Yeah, he's going to come after me because he was before me because he outranks me and I've got to become less so he can become more. What are you talking about, John? Yeah, it's a little bit of an idiom. A pithy little statement that sticks in your brain and causes you to go, hmm, I wonder what he's talking about. Same thing's happening here with Jesus. Jesus throws out this little statement, a little while you'll see me no more and then a little while you'll see me again. A little while you see me no more, a little while you see me again. A little while you'll see me no more, and a little while you'll see me again. It's repeated three times in the disciples' questions and Jesus twice. What's he talking about? Well, Jesus, in essence, says, well, let me make it plain. It's just like a woman having a baby. Huh, that makes sense. Keep reading. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. There is joy coming and no one will take your joy from you. But to get there, there's a hard path ahead of you. You will weep. You will lament. You will be sorrowful. And the world around you all the while will be rejoicing while you're in your mourning. But keep this picture in your mind. It's a metaphor that you can understand and relate to like a woman who knows her delivery date has come. And so every expectant mother knows as that delivery date arrives, there is a sense of anxiety, Maybe a sense of dread, maybe even a bit of fear, even if she's gone through a delivery before, but mixed with anticipation. Because when she's delivered the child, she forgets about, the word literally here is anguish or tribulation. Same word he uses later in the text. She forgets about that. Her joy can't be taken away from her. Her pain fades into the backdrop. Okay, so we meet uh, midweek, anybody who's preaching on the text and some of the students to talk about the text in advance. What do you see in the text and what should we call it? And what are the, you know, stories and all that stuff we should use? And I'm looking at this and I'm like, you know what? I think this text should be called, uh, why do women whine so much? Uh, but, but, But I was told that that wasn't a good thing to say. So I didn't title the message that, and I didn't just share that thought with you. You know, I was there three times. Like, what's the big deal? It didn't look like it was that difficult to me. Verse 22, I I heard the groaning. Yes, yes. My wife's here. It's okay. You'll have sorrow, but you'll also have peace. It can't be taken away from you. And Jesus just keeps on moving. Your joy is going to change your asking That's back to chapter 14 and the Spirit's asking. Your joy is going to change your suffering because your joy is based on a new kind of knowing. Knowing the Father sent me, I've come from him and I'm returning to him. You know who I am now. It's going to change everything. But I don't know if you noticed, he didn't actually really answer their question. Because they wanted to know, what does he mean when he says, a little while? What do you mean by that, Jesus? Jesus. A little while we'll see you no more, and a little while we'll see you again. 
What do you mean by a little while? So let's talk about the end times. Let's keep reading a little more. In that day, you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you'll ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. What did he mean in a little while? In a little while, you'll see me no more. And then in a little while later, you'll see me again. He refers to that day two or three times. In that day, in that hour, these things are going to happen. What was Jesus talking about? And I think we could take this term, that day, in three different ways. We could take it in the immediate sense. The immediate sense of that day that Jesus is referring to what is right in front of them, his death and his burial. In a little while, you're going to see me no more. In fact, 24 hours from now, I'm going to be dead. I'm going to be buried in Joseph's tomb. You will see me physically no longer because I'm in the grave. But come Sunday, that grave is going to be empty. You're going to see me again. And Sunday afternoon, I'm going to take a walk down the road to Emmaus, a couple of disciples walking with me. And Sunday night, I'm going to show up in a room. You're locked inside, the doors shut, locked secure, and I'm going to stand there in your midst. In a little while, you'll see me no more, death and burial. And in a little while longer, you'll see me again, resurrection. We could take it in the immediate sense of the word. We could also take second option in the imminent sense of the greater context of what Jesus has been talking about. It's so clear all the way through this conversation that Jesus has been hammering away at this concept, I'm leaving you. It's not just my death, my burial, my resurrection, but it is also my ascension. I'm going back to the Father. So chapter 13, 1, where the conversation begins, it says Jesus knows that the time has come for him to leave the world. Verse 3, it's time for him to return to the Father. Chapter 14, verse 28, you've heard me say, I'm going away. I'm going to my father. And in chapter 14, verse 19, he he says in response to Thaddeus' question, yet a little while longer and the world will see me no longer, but you will see me. And Thaddeus is like, "What what do you mean? The world won't be able to see you, but will be able to see you. That makes no sense. How can we see something the world won't see? And Jesus says, because I'm talking about spiritual sight. I am going to be gone in the ascension. I will be with the Father, but the Spirit is going to open your eyes. There will be a seeing and a hearing and an understanding. You're going to have your spiritual eyes open. So, in the imminent sense, we could say, in a little while, he's referring to his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. He's gone, ascended. You see me no longer, but in a little while you'll see me again because the spirit whom I'm going to send is going to open your eyes and you will see. And the third option, of course, is in the ultimate sense. Verse 23, in that day, verse 26, in that day, that there is a day coming. The New Testament speaks of this so often, a day coming when you'll see me no more, make no mistake about it, but you will see me again. 
So chapter 14, he said, I'm going to my father's house and I'm going to prepare a home for us, our eternal place where we will live together and I'm going to come again. I'm leaving, but I'm coming again. The hour is coming when you will see the son of man, Jesus, his favorite title for himself, son of man. You will see him returning in all of his glory. Now that phrase, son of man, that name, son of man, anytime you see it in the New Testament, a bell should be going off in your mind. Ding, 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 ding. It's a very important term. It's a prophetic term from Daniel 7, and we just read past it and we think, oh, he's talking about his humanity. Yes, but more so. This prophetic text, Daniel 7, and I saw one like the son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and he said to him, or and to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel is prophesying there's one day going to be this son of man who comes and he is going to be given an eternal dominion, an eternal reign, an eternal kingdom, the son of man. Jesus' favorite name for himself, son of man. He prophesies about the end times, his coming return. And he says of himself in Matthew 24, and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And then John who wrote this gospel also writes the final book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus. And there he talks about the son of man seated on the clouds with a very interesting word picture. And it says this, put in your sickle, the son of man seated on the clouds and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud, the son of man in that context, swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Okay, some of you older folks remember a song we used to sing, at least when I was a kid, we sang it. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. That's what it's talking about. The sickle of the Lord. Our God is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. That's that old hymn. The harvest that's coming in the end days. So Paul points us forward when he begins to write about our hope for the end. Hope for the restoration, literally, of this old world that we walk on. The terra firma, the creation itself, that it has been groaning and it is longing to be restored. The new heavens and the new earth. So let me just read a long chunk from Romans 8. We're not going to put it on the screen, just listen to it. I consider the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation, the terra firma on which we stand, the creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth right up till now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What Paul is saying there is the creation around us is groaning, literally the earth, the terra firma. So when you think earthquakes, famine, hurricanes, tsunami, it is the labor pains of the earth longing for its full restoration. And he says there, our bodies as well groan. Lean into the person next to you. You can hear it groaning, right? longing to be clothed with our glorified heavenly state. C.S. Lewis, in the language of Narnia, the lion and the witch and the wardrobe, put it this way, that that world trapped in the endless night of winter was longing, and the, the phrase he uses is for the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve to be revealed. And when the children of God are revealed, Aslan is on the move and springtime begins to break into the long night of winter. And so we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. But in the between, the now and then, there are some trials and tribulations and some sufferings that we face. But take it to the bank. The night is nearly over and the daytime is on the horizon. You will sorrow for a while, Jesus says, but your eternal joy will make those temporary sorrows fade. So you're like, okay, which one is it then? In a little while, you'll see me no longer. And in a little while, you'll see me again. The immediate context, I'm headed to the cross and I'm headed to the grave, but come Sunday, you'll see me. Or the eminent context, the promise of the Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm going to the Father, but the Spirit will come and you will see. Or the ultimate fulfillment, the great and coming day of the Lord when he wipes every tear from our eyes. Which one is it? Is it the immediate or is it the imminent or is it the ultimate? Yes. The answer is yes. It applies in all three senses of that word. In the immediate, in the imminent, and in the ultimate. But I think the most pragmatic for us in the day and the time that we're living in is that Jesus is pointing ahead to the days ahead, not just the weekend ahead of them, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, as critical as those events were and are, but to all the years of gospel ministry laid out before these men. And in essence, they don't understand it yet, but Jesus knows something powerful is going to happen seven weeks from now, 50 days later on Pentecost, something that is going to change the world. And you are going to see things differently because the Spirit is going to baptize you by fire and you're going to ask differently. You're going to pray differently. You don't know it now, men, but you're going to turn the world upside down. And you also don't know that 10 of the 11 of you sitting in front of me will pay the ultimate price for that ministry. 10 of you will die martyrs' deaths because of this gospel of peace. You'll be clothed with power from on high, but the ruler of this age is going to oppose everything that you're on about. There will be weeping in your waiting. And so you need some steel in your spines because some hard days are ahead. Now, what I'd really love to do if we had the time and we don't is to jump out of this text and start down a long rabbit trail about spiritual warfare. And to run down the list on the other side of all the promises that are ours in Jesus. And the hope and the security and the standing and the authority and the joy that we have in him and him alone. Let me just give you one for sake of time. Just one promise. Romans 8 asks these questions. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? That's an important question. 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Wow, what a triumphant text. But did you take note how Paul wrote it? Because Paul didn't say all of those things won't touch you. Uh, you get to skip all of those things. He didn't say that at all. He said, in these things. In the midst of them, we are more than conquerors. So let's finish our text. The last few verses, 29. And his disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it's come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And so as Jesus finishes out the evening, he finishes this conversation on a very sober note, and then he turns to pray for them. In this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome. Uh, it, it's interesting, their response, they're like, oh, Jesus, now we get it. Now you're talking plain language. Now we believe in you. And Jesus' answer is a little ironic. He's like, really? Do you? Do you really believe? It's an echo back to Peter, like, I'm going to lay my life down for you. He's like, really, Peter? Do you really believe? Because in just a few hours, you're going to all be scattered away and you're going to leave me alone. Jesus is a little punchy. But I'm not alone because the Father is going to be with me. And I think in North America today, in our comfortable world of peace and prosperity, we easily rattle off all the cliches. Yeah, God works together for good and all those things for those who love him and those kind of things. But if we go back and we look at Jesus' life, the story of Christmas, the story of Advent, and walk through his story, you will see these themes woven together. How trials and joy, how suffering and triumph actually hold hands all the way through the story. The promise begins not with Jesus, but with his predecessor, John the Baptist. There's an old couple named Zachariah and Elizabeth who've never been able to have a child. And an angel comes to Zachariah and says, you know what? By this time next year, you're going to have a baby boy and you're going to call him John and he is going to go ahead of the Messiah. He is going to prepare the way. And all these years that you have so lost hope, you are going to have great joy. He's going to be a powerful preacher. Uh, you should also know he's going to die a martyr's death. The promise to Mary was, little virgin girl, you found favor with the Lord. You'll have a son. You'll call him Jesus. He'll save his people from their sin. And Mary's response, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God. Meanwhile, Joseph, the fiance, who knows that baby is not his, is getting an angel visit of his own. Don't be afraid to take her to you as your wife. 
And he does, but the text says clearly they have no relations until that baby is born. And so we think, oh yeah, it's all nice and clean and wonderful, right? They get married and it's all joy, but no one knew the true story behind the story. Mary and Joseph still had to walk that journey of the gossip and the whispering and the question marks in the community. Caesar decides it's a good thing to take a census to keep the tax records all up to date. Return to your ancestral home. So they make the journey to Bethlehem. And there's no room in the end. And so the son of God is going to be born in a barn. Where's the joy in that one? The shepherds are told, good news, great joy. Great joy. Today in the city of David, a savior's born. Eight days later, Mary and Joseph take the baby to the temple to dedicate their firstborn son to the Lord. And an old man named Simeon grabs the baby and he's like, oh God, you promised me that I wouldn't die until I saw the Messiah. And he blesses this child. And then he says to the parents, this child is going to be a light to the Gentiles and salvation for the nation of Israel. And then he turns to Mary and he says, and by the way, mom, a sword is going to cut through your heart because of this little kid. He's going to be hated and oppressed by many. The wise men following a star from the east, a little while later, get to Bethlehem and they rejoice because the star stops over the city. A new king has been born. They finally found him. And Herod, in response, wipes out all the infants in that region under two years of age. Joy and sorrow, side by side, holding hands all the way through this story. And as John unpacks Jesus' public ministry, we've looked at it so many times in this series. He came to his own, chapter one, and they did not receive him. Chapter three, the lights come into the darkness, but the darkness didn't want the light. It loved the darkness instead. It would not come to the light. Jesus himself saying to his brothers, the world hates me because I testify about its works being evil. And the path that Jesus had to endure during during those 33 years, that path of salvation, the road to Calvary, which is called the Via Dolorosa, the, the path of pain. And Hebrews 12 puts it like this. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I like how Peterson often will paraphrase uh, particular phrases, and this one is really good in the message, his paraphrase. He says it this way, when you find yourself flagging in your faith, Go over that story again, item by item, that long litany of hostility he, Jesus, plowed through, and that, I love this line, that will shoot adrenaline in your soul. Man, how we need that. You see, the paradox of the Christian life is that we live with our eyes set on eternity, We live with our eyes set on the finished work of Jesus Christ. We look back and we see all he accomplished. We look at his sinless life, his sacrificial death, the victory as he walks away from the tomb, that he ascended to the Father's right hand, that he is ever interceding for us. Both Romans 8 and Hebrews 7 tell us that our living hope is in Christ and our hearts are filled with joy. And yet we look at our suffering world of pain and we say, how long, O Lord, right? The two go together. They hold hands. And I don't know where this weekend finds you, and I don't know in particular who in our church needs this message, but I know 
that every time we gather, there are individuals and there are families who are in the thick of it. And Jesus didn't hold anything back from these men. He, he doesn't hold anything back from us either. In this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And that little promise in chapter 16, verse 22, no one can take your joy from you. So if we go back to this beautiful picture of art here, and you talk about the blessings and the trials, quote unquote, of our lives. And then you think back over the course of your life and you say, are they really blessings and trials? And if we actually learn the most, grow the most down here in the trials, then maybe we should call them blessings. Maybe there are blessings in our trials because they point us to the Lord. And what about those blessings? Because if you look at church history, the church has done her very best during these days. And the church has been at her very worst in these days. Maybe we should call it the trials of blessings. We pray for all these things. The Lord gives them to us. And honestly, folks, look around us. Do we not live in the land of milk and honey? We live in a time of peace and prosperity. I don't think any of you are worried about tomorrow's meal. There's food in the deep freeze. There's clothes in the closet. There's a little money in the bank. We're looking forward to a Christmas celebration. Even the poorest among us in North America is wealthy by, North Americans, by world standards. We live in a time of blessing, and has it been good for us spiritually? And I think instead of saying, you know what? Joy is somewhere out there. I think what this text would tell us is the joy is right here. That blessings and trials actually hold hands. They go together. So what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? And what if the trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? And what if the trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are your mercies in disguise? Hmm. What if? Things that make you go, hmm. Would you stand together with me? We're going to pray together. We'll sing, and we'll be on our way. Lord Jesus, uh, you know our congregation well. You know each one of us individually and personally. You know all of the joys, all of the highlights, the triumphs, the victories, all of the things that we love to Instagram about, the joys of our lives. And Lord, you know the struggles. You know our hurt and you know our pain. You know when there's sickness and when relationships go sideways and life does not turn out the way we had hoped it would turn out. And in the midst of both of those seasons, Lord, you are still Lord over our lives. The end goal, the ultimate goal we know has been signed, sealed, and delivered in Jesus. The final victory for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You endured it, Lord, on our behalf. You paid every price that needed to be paid so that we could walk into your presence with boldness and with great joy, but we've got to get there. 
And we've got to get there through the journey of this life. And so, Lord, I pray for the families in our church that particularly those who are in this season in a trial or hard time, may they be able to lift their eyes to you and see that even in those times there is blessing, there is joy, that our joy cannot be taken away, that in this world we will have trouble, but we can take heart because you have overcome the world. We ask these blessings for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.